Good afternoon. I'm here to uh, kick off another episode of Talk of the County. Um, we're here today uh, to talk about black history, which we all know is American history, uh, focusing in on aspects of the civil rights movement. Here with me are the president of the Franklin County Board of Commissioners, Kevin L. Boyce, and Dr. Haseem Kahim Jeffries, uh, the Ohio State University history professor. Mm -hmm. Correct. So we are going to have a, a relaxed uh, conversation. Uh, again, uh, the purpose of uh, Talk of the County is to inform, um, inspire, and sprinkle in some entertainment. Uh, but we're here to talk about a very serious matter, uh, and that is um, the importance and the significance of black history, not only in Franklin County, but our nation. Um, Dr. Jeffries, you've been um, teaching the civil rights movement for several decades. I know you've taught at uh, the University of Alabama, and now you're at the Ohio State University. Um, have you noticed uh, a difference here uh, amongst the student body um, at Ohio State versus the University of Alabama, given the regional difference? Although both schools, I know, draw uh, students from all over the country. No, there's certainly a, a regional flavor um, to the students. Uh, at Ohio State versus University of Alabama, or, or, or even just students in the Midwest and the Northeast and the West and, the, and in the South, uh, which I've encountered in, in various ways, whether they're in the classroom or outside of. Part of it has to do with the focus on civil rights education that they receive before they ever get to college. Um, and what does that look like? Uh, for example, students here in Ohio uh, imagine themselves, as it relates to civil rights history, as being on the right side of history. The civil rights movement, segregation, white supremacy, Jim Crow was something that happened down there in places like Alabama. And we were the ones who rode in on the white horse to help save the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that colors both how they understand the problems that African-Americans were facing uh, during the civil rights era, not just in a place like Alabama, but also here in Ohio, in Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and the rural parts of Ohio, but also the solutions uh, that they go after. If you think the problem of racism and inequality is something that just happens down there, then you're unwilling to look in the backyard, your own backyard, uh, at the problems that exist here and how inequality has been perpetuated over the years. Yes, exactly. You know, George Floyd's murder occurred mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Absolutely. Um, you know, so it's, it's, not, it's not regional, right. but it exists everywhere. And it always has existed everywhere. That's, that's also a critical aspect of studying the civil rights movement and just studying black protests is that it's not a, a moment in time, right? The, the problem of inequality existed at this particular moment in time. It's always been here. It's part of the nation's founding and we haven't separated from it. We haven't solved the problem of it. So that's the work that we have to do today and going forward. Uh, today, do you believe your students uh, since the weight of structural racism? Yeah, you know, students' understanding of the problems that they face and the problems face in America sort of change over time, right? But we are in a particular moment where the students in my classes today are far more aware 
of the problems of structural inequality, the problems of systemic racism than any students I've taught in the last two decades. And we saw that manifested in the summer of 2020 uh, when millions of young people take to the streets protesting the murder of George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and calling for justice for the victims of police violence. But they were also calling for an end to systemic racism. We hadn't heard that before. So they were keenly aware of the problems of police violence as they related to systems and structures embedded in our society. So they are, in this particular generation, uh, more informed uh, than I've seen students in previous generations. Yeah. Um, I think NWA uh, articulated it different, but it was a realization uh, from the eyes of uh, young people grew up in South Central Absolutely. Los Angeles, and they expressed it through rap. Well, I mean, and one of the things that I mean, we have to we have to speak honestly and candidly, right? Like Black folk have been calling for an end to systemic racism since 1619, right? Like oh, the slavery thing ain't really working out for us. We might need to end this system, right? But what was so unique about 2020 is for the first time we saw young white people calling in large mass numbers for an end to the same thing. So that's one of the things that made that particular moment unique. And when we think about the students who we're encountering now at Ohio State, you know, they're part of that collective, right? And so collectively, we see more people who are consciously aware, more young people who are consciously aware of the problems of inequality. Yeah. Um, further, uh, Dr. Jeffries, how do you think the media, um, way they, the media has handled the social, the civil rights movement, both uh, during the 60s, the, the way it was captured, you know, the, the way where you can go from one news channel to another on current affairs and see the difference uh, of ideology and opinion. How do you think that uh, the media coverage of the civil rights movement impacted the public perception at that time? And how do you think that in retrospect, how does the media handle race relations today? Well, journalists, media, broadly defined, are the first drafters of history, right? So how they capture, how they interpret civil rights history in this moment, civil rights activism in, in, this, in this instance, really colors how future generations would understand what the movement was, mm -hmm. what the movement was about, who were its leaders. And we know that during the, in this is 50s and 60s, that journalists were looking for a shorthand. They were looking for civil rights made easy, right? And so, in terms of interpretation. So, you know, the, civil, the leaders of the civil rights movement were the ones who were standing in a pulpit behind a microphone. Um, civil rights movement activism was that which was most visible. It was, it was marches and demonstrations. And unfortunately, what gets lost in that are the many everyday people, the women, the working class folk, the poor folk, the sharecroppers, um, the, 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 the people who are living in, in urban poverty who are organizing for change. They get lost. Um, the grassroots organizing work, right? The stuff that doesn't appear on camera, that gets lost as well. That was lost in those initial, uh, that initial reporting. And that has influenced how we understand not only the movement then, but also the efforts to create change now. 
because we're still looking for the Dr. King, we're still looking for a preacher and a microphone, as opposed to looking to everyday people, as opposed to looking to union organizers, as opposed to looking to young people, right, for where movement activism continues to be. So that first draft didn't get it quite right, and we're still living with the consequences of that today. Right. Do you, in retrospect, feel as though the media really treated Martin Luther King much differently than they treated Malcolm X? Well, yeah. Uh, one, you know, well, well, first, you know, the, we often pit King against Malcolm X, right? And it's like, well, King at a certain point is the most reviled civil rights activist in the United States. Forget about Malcolm, right? But we forget Malcolm is assassinated, but so is Dr. King, right? I mean, Dr. King is no hero. Right. To certainly in the South, but even at a particular moment in 1968, when he comes out against the Vietnam War or 1967, when he comes out against the Vietnam War, he is lambasted. Right. By not just conservative media, but also liberal media. Right. For his critique of the United States and foreign policy. But one of the things that then happens is he dies. Right. And at that moment, you know, on April 3rd, 1968, Dr. King is the most reviled civil rights activist in the United States. April 4th, he's, a, he's assassinated. April 5th, he's now a hero. In part because his legacy and his image can be crafted in a way that supports the status quo and his radicalization can be set aside. Right? And in a very real way, we've seen that Dr. King has been both de-radicalized and de-racialized, frozen on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And we've done something similar to Malcolm X. Right. Like we we've moved away from his radical calls uh, for black solidarity and we have him rejecting the nation of Islam and moving into sort of this colorblind way. When, in fact, he still clung to the idea that black folk have to come together first and deal with white supremacy before they can deal with anything else. And, and, you know, on that note, Dr. King in his uh, later days began to focus on poverty and economic uh, issues uh, of, seg- of segregation and, and that it, the remnants of that and, and the impact it had on both social and economic justice and that they are inseparable t- twins, which is one of my favorite quotes, to, you know, the two go together and, you know, and it, he went, was in Memphis to, to organize sanitation workers and that really made him a, a, a threat to a lot of people because he was talking about economics and he was talking about um, equity. Yeah. Not just equality, he was talking about equity. And that's always, even to this day, seen as a threat. And now uh, you see it in a different form. Uh, First it was, we don't need critical race theory in our schools. Then that went away. Now we don't need DEI uh, in the fabric of uh, our institutions, our organizations. In my Dr. Jefferson, it hasn't even been five years yet. <laughs> <laughs> President Boyce, uh, can you? T- I mean, tell me how could we have overcome uh, the the realization that uh, that we saw uh, from from the United States in in the light of what happened. Uh, to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of the things that, that were part of an uh, awakening. And you yourself was on the front lines and experienced uh, physically 
being maced. Uh, so talk about and no one better than you to talk about that as the founder of uh, Ohio's only African American bank. By the way, but well, well come back. Two two things I got to go back to uh, in this conversation. One, what makes you think I know what NWA is? I just know it. I just know it. Yeah, okay. I got a little word. I got a little word. Yeah, yeah. You got me. I'm like, he's going to make me spell it out on top of the county. That's why I was trying to do it. I was like, what makes you think I know it? I almost had to add a cussure to the talk of the county. I had my cassette tape, you know, pop it in. I think Dr. Jeffrey said something that really hit a chord with me. And that's the notion that the media are the first drafters of history often. And that is a terrifying notion in my mind. And because because um, the media today is rooted in subjectivity to me. It, you know, um, historically journalism was designed to provide information and uh, to educate and to inform. Uh, today, um, and, and even when it comes to racial and um, American history, it's always been told with the subjectivity of what I would describe as rose-colored glasses, you know, seeing through rose-colored glasses. So that being said, I, I really feel like we live in a time uh, where it's hard to say whether or not, you know, I, I think about this often, uh, it's hard to say whether or not it's, it was better when it was overt or is it better when it's covert, you know? And I, I feel like, you know, in the 60s, um, our ancestors, our relatives were on the forefront of American history and it was covert. There was a line in the sand and we were evolving as a country. It was a painful evolution um, uh, to some people. It's so painful to, that they lost their lives. Um, uh, today, racism, is deeply embedded in, as you to use your term, the fabrics of society, and and I worry that while this generation may be quote unquote more woke to some of the racial issues, I I wonder if if because of do we fully understand the depth of the covert racism that is embedded in our society? So. I, 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 I love the perspective of a professor that interacts with students every day, all day, and, and that is very encouraging to be, quite frankly. Um, so to answer your question about, I, I kind of forgot the question, but I'm answering my own question. You know? <laughs> so uh, to, answer, to answer your question, though, about uh, the being the maced and whatnot. By the way, when I was maced with Congresswoman Beatty and President Shannon Harden, it wasn't the first time in my life I was maced. Uh, it was the first time that it made national news <laughs> that I was amazed. And, and, you know, the better part of those kind of instances, those kind of scenarios, is what comes from it. And, and in this case, in the tragedy of the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, as you said, um, in this case, I truly believe um, that this country has turned the page to a new chapter in American history. And it's being written right before our eyes. And it doesn't mean it's good or bad, it just means a new chapter started. And so this conversation around where DEI fits and, and that is, is somewhat, um, uh, it is, I would describe it as infancy, infancy 
Um, but the you know, it's funny, I was saying this, Doc, you appreciate this. Can I call you Doc? I just yeah. like the word Doc. You appreciate this. You know, you know, some people, I feel like, in when they when we talk about DI, they get so focused on, well, we need a black this, or we need a black woman this, or we need a black male here. And there, and it's that that actually is uh, counter to the purpose of DNI. The idea to me of DNI is that that's not an issue. That I get an opportunity to present the best case because I'm the best candidate, or I have the best ideas, or I have the most experience, or I'm the best, you know, for mm-hmm. the job. And so, to me, what DEI is rooted in is the bigger conversation about you know where racism. Uh, what we want racism to be, and that's out of the conversation. The best place for racism is for it to not exist at all. It's not about, you know, there's this inequality versus equity. It, it, so, you know, that's definitely part of the, the uh, formula and equation. But to me, when we've had success, it'll be when, when a white candidate and a black candidate are standing there and you are listening to them for their ideas, their experience, content of their character, and whatever other measures you you want to include it. So I feel like, um, well, the experience for me getting pepper sprayed was one moment. Uh, I'm excited about uh, what I believe has started in America and it's a new chapter. How else could you have started a bank, you know, in uh, a black owned bank in Columbus, Ohio, of all places. And I really believe that only a time and point in history where a new chapter has started and things are evolving or changing, could you do that? You know, I couldn't have I couldn't have pulled off starting a bank uh, five years ago or, you know, maybe even not now. You know, it was all the stars and the moons aligning under a awful tragedy. Uh, and then, you know, it maybe even some elements of COVID might have enhanced that, you know, because that also, I think, uh, amplified a lot of the, the pressure that we're all under. So anyways, so I, I do feel like um, uh, the D&I movement and. And uh, where we are is a is a, a a fresh chapter. We're probably on page two of chapter whatever you want to call. It. Uh, yeah, opportunity can be found um, during a crisis, and we had the convergence of uh, an awakening re- regarding um, the lack of civil justice uh, for all people, and we had a hundred year pandemic, and those. Uh, things created opportunities for a number of firsts to come out of that. Uh, for example, Franklin County was able to participate in a, um, the kickoff of a Freedom Equity, which is a CDFI, Community Development Finance Institution, intentionally focused on uh, providing loans to micro-businesses of color. Don't know if that would have happened otherwise. It was an environment that created, that afforded an opportunity um, to heal the immediate uh, symptoms of, of the COVID uh, epidemic, but also, I like to say, that was able to plant seed to create greater resiliency uh, and opportunity uh, for, for underrepresented folks. And it brought a lot. It brought to a lot, a lot of health disparities too. Um, health disparities, Doctor Jeffries, is something that um, kind of gets lost because the racism overshadows everything. Mm-hmm. It overshadows 
um, our housing crisis, when we talk about housing affordability, it overshadows homelessness and, and, the, and the number of unhoused right here in Franklin County. Mm-hmm. It, it overshadows the decline in life expectancy. How do we take the legacies of the civil rights movement, um, the work that has been done um, over the last four years when there's been an increased focus on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how do we take that in what's next if you're, if you're talking to your, your students in your class? What ne- what's next? Where do we need to go? Getting to Commissioner Boyce's point, that new chapter in American history. Well, I mean, one of the things I think is important, and you mentioned sort of health and health disparities and the like, is to understand that what we're fighting for today is not fundamentally different than what black folk have been fighting for for generations even during the height of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and moving into the black power movement. They're fighting for access to health care. You know, the Black Panther Party uh, has free health clinics, sickle cell anemia testing, uh, free uh, starting an ambulance service in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because of the lack of access to uh, health care. Uh, we saw, you know, down in Alabama, they're, you know, in rural Alabama, they're connecting with Tuskegee Institute. Uh, and trying to provide uh, health clinics through the war on poverty. So this question of health care and health disparities is something that black folk have been acutely aware of and have been trying to organize uh, to overcome or to address for generations. And despite those efforts, we still have a long way to go. And I think it was made demonstrably clear, of course, during the pandemic, uh, We should not be, in this society, the richest nation in the world, be able to predict with almost 100% certainty a person's life outcome based solely on the zip code in which they live. Mm -hmm. That's tragic. Uh, And that speaks to not us overshadowing sort of racism or racism overshadowing these other issues, healthcare, um, personal safety, public safety, housing and the like, but saying that, no, we got to see how it, how it connects, how it's informed, right? And especially housing, because where you live determines your access to opportunity, right? And so dealing with the question of housing, dealing with where people live, dealing with how resources are distributed uh, is critically important going forward. The new chapter, I think you're right, we, have, we are in a new chapter, uh, but we can't be caught I know you're not saying this, but sometimes when we think we've turned a page, Mm -hmm. we think about one of the great American myths, and that is the myth of perpetual progress. That just because we've started a new chapter, that suddenly things are naturally going to get better. Well, in that new chapter, there's also opposition. And I Mm -hmm. think the success of the programs that you were talking about, the success, the establishment of a black bank, when we see companies and corporations um, dealing with uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, You have those who benefit not from change, but from the status quo. And those who who are invested in maintaining the status quo, one based on privilege for some and disadvantage for others, are pushing back against that. Whether it's an economic interest that they have or a social interest divide from a particular privilege. So that new chapter uh, we are certainly in, but that has both the positive, the attempts to move forward, but also those who are trying to keep us where we are, if not roll back. Yeah, and if I, if I could just jump in too, because I, 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 
You hit something again that I think is worthy of, of deeper conversation. In that chapter, uh, we, we have uh, peaks and valleys. And one of our valleys is the political process. You know, um, you know I've, I feel like after, and, and now I'm going to be very subjective and very um, anecdotal, I, I will say, um, uh, and I'll show my political wares here, but um, I believe truly that Barack Obama's election um, also was an awakening in America. And as a result, um, the far opposite was elected in the next election. And, and I think that too is part of this new chapter. So while there's an awakening because, you know, the, the tragedy of George Floyd playing out on national TV certainly uh, hit home, I think, no matter what, where you fell in uh, your political ideology, um, but the politics that has, to me, that is just um, undergirding all of this chapter uh, is even harsher. I, I feel like we live in a political time right now uh, we both have relatives in, in Congress. We live uh, right now in a time where um, I just, I, I've been in elected office for almost 30 years and I've just never seen anything like it. You know, I, I was saying before we got on the show, um, the money that I won't say the race, but they just put nearly a hundred million dollars in the warm up round mm-hmm. on a race. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking the primary warm up round on a race. You know, and I think that uh, there's got to be a risk. We're going to set all kinds of records this year. Uh, and so I think the chapter, um, while it's being written, there are, you know, there, there's some positive things co- coming out of the chapter. But there are as many negative things that we're battling with, too. Commissioner Boyd, you just answered the question of where I was going. Uh, I, I was going to ask you if eight years of President Barack Hussein uh, Obama was the mega, uh, the mega movement, Mega America Great Again, a reaction to eight years of hope, change, and health care for all, Obamacare. Uh, do you believe that uh, the Mega America Great Again movement was a reaction to eight years of, of living under um, President Obama, who, by the way, by all economic indicators, was a, a successful presidency. Uh, he would have scored well if it was a gray card on being president, in my opinion. Can I, I jump in real quick? Please. I don't think it necessarily was a reaction to eight years of Obama. I think it was a reaction to one day. I think it was a reaction <laughs> to the election. We didn't have to get to eight years. <laughs> one day I love it. The day As you pointed out, yeah, the most significant election probably in the last, it wasn't 2016, it wasn't even 2020 was 2010, right? I mean, that's the, yeah. that's, that, that's the midterm election. It's, that's the census election. Yeah, yeah. And that was, the, that, was, that was the political consolidation of the far right, mm-hmm. right? And, and their willingness to use Obama's election, his presence in the White House, the presence of Michelle Obama in the election uh, in the White House, as saying that we've lost something, mm-hmm. right? And Racism is the most powerful political ideology America has ever created. And those who are willing to deploy it have been able to do so to great effect. And we saw it 
beginning almost immediately, and this is part of that Tea Party revolution, was infused mm -hmm. with racist rhetoric, right? And racist overtones. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was clear. And the political manifestation of that we see in 2010. So, so yeah, we've been living with that, um, you know, ever, ever since uh, that November day in 2008. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I, I was going to zero in on the word. I didn't think it was a reaction necessarily as well. Um, but, you know, what's the uh, uh, fallout is too strong of a word, uh, but the uh, uh, maybe the next steps, the next the next chapter post Obama's president, post his election, um, I think is something that um, will be under this kind of spell, if you will, for the next decade. I, I really believe that, and you see it in. I, I mean, I, I've never been a part of this party conversation, I'm certainly identified with, with one party, but both parties are guilty of, of missing uh, some of the opportunities to progress in racism, sexism, all the, all the things that, uh, that, we, that we're debating today. Um, and so you know, the reaction, I don't know if it's the right word, but I would say, I would say that I feel like um, you're going to see more. I don't think it's going to wane. I don't think it's going to uh, I, I think the moderate middle uh, is the thing of the past. Mm. And I think for now, even even when you go to the barbershop and you, you listen to the debates mm. in, the bar, in the barbershop, and it used to be uh, homages, you know, now, today, it's, it's you know, for, I, I'm always amazed when I go to the barbershop at what people are saying, you know, mm. and, and you, you now have, you know, uh, there are there's statistical data that supports black men are moving toward Republican uh, ideology. And, and so, you know, you, 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 how, how can that be? How, how can black men be moving? But um, Cornell Belcher, uh, a well-known um, pollster, uh, was on, uh, I can't remember the show, just, oh, Black Men of America. It came on about three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about three weeks ago, and, and uh, Cornell Belcher was on, and he said that, uh, and I, I kept hearing this and I kept seeing it in the barbershop, uh, but he, he laid it out statistically that no, no, this is a real thing mm. that black men are uh, responding to um, being neglect, feeling neglected in both political ideologies. And, if, and, it, and it's really just rooted in racism. It's really rooted in racism and poverty. And if black men have just been at the bottom rung of all of it for so long, now you've got those who may uh, still feel like they're in trenches. Uh, that are they, they feel compelled to go to the far to the far uh, right and, and, and that's scary that's scary because you know I truly believe don't, we don't belong there you know I feel, truly believe that's not a place for but that to me is how how uh, to use your term reaction how the reaction has become uh, somewhat defining even for black men and, and I, I, to me it's an absurd notion that um, that's where there's even you know 10 percent of black men that are moving in that direction. To me, that that um, is mind-boggling. Yes, because when we think about uh, politics and, and public policy, one would think that one's self-interest would drive which direction they go. Usually and the struggle, <laughs> you know, it's that old saying, there are no permanent friends, no permanent enemies in politics. There's only permanent interest. And but it's how you define your self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. And so in yourself, how you define and understand your self-interest is a reflection of how you understand the world around you. 
right? And so if you feel, uh, not as a defense, but just trying to make sense of this too, it doesn't make much sense to me, but trying to make sense of it, right? If you're seeing, see, see part of the problem, so let's talk specifically, mm -hmm. talk, talk specifically about brothers among brothers, right? Yeah, and the rest of the county. But, 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 <laughs> but is the idea that, you know, to a certain extent, we, I think, as a community, might be guilty of having oversold voting. And, 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 and I'm not saying that we don't. Oh, <laughs> interesting. interesting. Now, we have to. Cortland Cox is a SNCC organizer, a veteran SNCC organizer. And he, and he has always said, and I consider myself a student of SNCC activists, right? He's always said voting um, is, is necessary, but not sufficient. Right? Necessary. In other words, we have to we have to participate in the political process. We have to vote. We have to we have to make educated votes. But in and of itself, it is not sufficient to create the kind of world that we need. But I think for so we have to we got to organize. We got to organize banks, right? We got we got to organize you know our schools. We got to organize our communities. But I think we've sold for so long. You just got to vote. You just got to vote. You just got to vote. And in the absence of change outside of that. You have generations who have come and said, look, I voted. My mother has voted. My grandmother has voted since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And yet, look at look at poverty. Look at housing. Mm -hmm. Look at opportunity. It hasn't changed. We've told them, if you just vote in order to get them out to vote, and then when things don't fundamentally change, and we saw this during the over, like Barack Obama, you got a black president. You know, it should be raining money now. And they're like, man, what is happening? It's not. So I think we bear, we broadly defined, bear a measure of responsibility for setting expectations um, at a level that were unrealistic for what elected officials can actually deliver in the kind of political system that we live in. And so to see people then saying, well, you know what, it hasn't been working, so why not try something else, I think is probably less of an indictment of them and might be more of an indictment of us. Broadly defined. Yeah, if I, if I just add one thing because I I love the way you put that. You know, um, it's, it's not the only thing, but I would say, I mean, if we're if we're making cookies and we left out sugar in the cookies, that cookie would not taste the same. And I feel like voting is the sugar in the cookies. I mean, it it, it definitely is very much a part of the broader ecosystem. So you know, very young people watching this, I want you to 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 understand that the the thing about voting though that bothers me is you got to be committed to the grind. It's it's almost like it, you know you you, you got to you know in finance we, we call it you know you when you're raising capital you say you know it's active capital or patient capital and patient capital means that you just gonna give your money it's gonna sit for a while you're not gonna get any dividends for a while and it's, you know you got to be patient and I kind of feel like that about voting you know that voting is a long haul you know that because when I think of why voting matters I think of the decisions that the Supreme Court weighs in on every year Absolutely. that are life changing. I think of, you know, with people like myself, we make decisions every day on how to expend your tax dollars to have a difference in your life or not. And, and I see good decisions and I see bad decisions, you know, at every level of government. And so I just want to, I agree with everything uh, Doc said, but I would just add that it's an important ingredient, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's not the only ingredient, you, you know, you can't just put the sugar in the oven and, 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 and mm -hmm. then the right. it comes out cookies right. and you right. eat the cookies right. and right. you know, you right. won't even taste good, right. you know. And so, you, you know, but, but if you put, if you mix it with flour, 
and you mix it with chocolate chips and you mix it with other things, then out, out of the oven comes something that is delicious and, and that you want to have again. And I feel like that's the case with folding. That, you know, you got to be committed to the the outcome of the the effort to create that cookie, the effort to, to create that batter that that, yeah. that that will taste good to everybody. And, and you know, sometimes... Even you put the right batteries, right. you put everything, yeah. it'll come out yeah. quite. Something yeah. you did just yeah. went quite right. You got to do it again. Yeah. And so uh, I think of voting in the same way. You know, we make, you know, it, it, we make those choices and decisions at the ballot box. Uh, and I'll be the first to say, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the notion that an, ele- an election or a person is the, is the golden ticket or the magic wand. You know, I, I've been in office almost 30 years and no one ever handed me a magic wand. Right. You know, they right, always said, right, hey, right. when you get in trouble, that's the button you push and all every problems right, go away, right, you know. Right. And so, uh, so just, I like to think of it as it's one ingredient, yeah. you know, to I, make the whole cake or cookie. I love the, the insight you provided uh, by saying that voting is oversold. Uh, and it, 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 that's, that's, um, you gonna get treat your brother. That is intriguing. Cause I, as the host of Talk of the County, had to sit back and listen to you as a professor. Cause I'm like, I know the knowledge coming. Yeah. And you yeah, laid yeah. out the knowledge. And I, yeah, I disagree with it. Because you, you need to do something after you vote. Voting right. gets you influence. Right. If you are a block of voters and you have get the influence and you are able to elect people that have your interests in mind, but don't let who's elected just assume what your interests are. Yeah. Right, right. You and, need and, to and have you know, I will also add to me, look at the statistics. They don't lie. You know, the black men, the same black men in the barbershop who are frustrated and saying they're now MAGA voters, look at where they are statistically in life. You know, the bottom of the rung in health disparities. Uh, you know, the one of the smallest portion of the population, but by far the largest incarcerated. Um, dropout rates, education rates. Uh, I mean, you just go down the list. And so, you know, statistically, black men are... I feel like statistically and systemically are not participating in the vote in the electoral process. And so as a result, I think the system kind of disregards us yeah. in the broader sense. And that's why they're frustrated. And yeah, in so many ways, because the farmers have an agenda, uh, the businessmen have an agenda, all these and black men don't have an agenda. I, you ask me, what's the black man? What's the black agenda for males in Franklin County right now? I can make up. I, I think there's an agenda, but I don't think we're organized together. I, I, I think black men, um, we all in the fight in our own respective silos. And I feel like um, I don't see a coordinated effort, you know, like some of these other uh, interest groups you, you named, you know, that I feel like they're they're organized and they're together and they got associations and they, they meet annually. They meet and they go to Washington and they go to their city councils. And, and I think, you know, we just haven't gotten that organized. Yeah. You know, I, thinking about sort of voting and to make sure my brother doesn't give me that call, <laughs> you know, you put the emphasis in the right place, right? That, and what I'm saying is that I think we've overemphasized the event of election day. And what you laid out was like, no, the emphasis shouldn't be on election day. It should be on the election process. 
right? Not the mechanics of it, but the process of participating, the process of holding after election day, holding elected officials accountable. I'm saying we don't have enough emphasis on that. That requires political organization. That requires political education. I think if we get that, then those who are turned off by the limited outcomes that they're experiencing might have a better appreciation for, okay, I was over-anticipating what might happen Mm -hmm. because we're focused. You're telling me so much about turnout, 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 election day, and less about what I should be doing before as well as what I should be doing after. And I I add, too, those in addition to that, you know, uh, it's it's participating in the electoral process, uh, trying to hold a good job, trying to be a homeowner, trying to get a good education, all of those things from an ingredient create a pathway to opportunities. Not, you know, there's no formula to success. It's just opportunities, you know. And I mean, people ask me all the time, um, you know, you know, and, I, and I, I'm not one to feel like accomplishments mean anything because to me, I'm off and on to the next thing. And it's really about impact. So, you know, however, I will say uh, every now and then I get a chance to reflect and think about it. And what I'm most proud of is the idea that the next generation has been given, I feel like my kids will do better than I did, you know, and, and like I'm doing better than my parents. And, and to me, that's to, with the American dream and everybody buys into that. You know, everybody, you know, mm-hmm. I, I may not care about you and your family, but I, I the idea that your daughters are educated people and, and doing well uh, in, in life and, in, you know, and, and experience all life's great, you know, greatness. I mean, that, that, that's valuable to me too, you know, and that, that, they had those opportunities. Uh, to me, it's, the, it's all those ingredients, but they have them because of all the, the ingredients that you put into it. You know, you're active in your community. You're uh, a homeowner, and, and you went to school, and you, you did all the right things. And not, not that that any of that is a formula to any one outcome or success, but it's it does set you up for opportunity. And I think that's what we're really talking about when it comes to the voting electoral processes. You know. We say, you know, uh, opportunity favors the prepared person or chance favors the prepared person. So to me, that's what voting is. It's it's a part of the preparation process for success. But, but what happens when the opportunities that are available for your children begin to shrink? Right? That, that, yeah. that, that, that you are not seeing a future that's brighter for them in the same ways that you saw it for yourself, that that the, the, your kids coming out of college, mm-hmm. if they were fortunate enough to make it to college, are saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars sure. in debt, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. are, are unable, for those who don't go to college, to get a factory job and break into the middle class because they can't buy a home. And I think that's part of the reality that we have to deal with that, you know, we don't have perpetual economic prospect, pro, uh, progress, we don't have perpetual creation of opportunities that sometimes we lose ground. I think that's a natural part of the economic system that we live in, in this world, but but it's framed, and this is where it becomes really dangerous, when sort of the way capitalism operates, and you know, we, we some people don't want us talking about capitalism, that's fine, we gotta talk about it, right? The, you know, there are winners and there are losers yeah. in any economic system. And in cycles, sometimes there are more losers. It's like, okay, but when that structural problem is then blamed on people, 
right? I lost my job because of, you know, Mexicans. I lost my job because of some Asians, right? They took my factory jobs and this, that, and the other. No, you lost your job because multinational corporations decided to go someplace else, right? They blew up a union. Yeah, Yeah. so, but that becomes, that then informs, for some, their political decision-making. And you have those who are willing to play on it, right? The whole notion of make America great again that now you've lost these opportunities, so we're gonna go back to this time where things were magically better for your parents or this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. Forget about where we were as black folk and black men, right? Mm -hmm. But they're selling that. And that is unfortunate because people then look to that and say, yeah, there must be something here that I'm missing, that I'm getting. And that to me is dangerous. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Jeff, do you think that's, that's probably one of the factors uh, that Congress is uh, dealing with when you talk about the border crisis. The border I don't know crisis. what the hell. I don't know what the hell. Border is, is, you is going, second call. That is, <laughs> it's, going, it's, going, it's going up. You know, it's a it's a threat to national security. Yeah, 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 no. And we need. You know, we don't want to pass anything, but we want to talk about it every day. That is a natural national. Yeah, crisis. I mean, look, 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 we're hyping up a lot of things, yeah. right? You know, yeah. race is the most powerful political organizing tool we ever had. But you combine racism and fear. Right. Those become really powerful political tools and you can galvanize people around that. And what we see happening right now at the at the southern border. Right. Is people playing to these notions of racism and fear because we talk about the southern border. We talk about Canada. Right. There's a lot of border in the United States and the and the and the immigrants who are coming over now. We're talking about people who come as families, children, mothers who are escaping political persecution and the like, right? So, you know, this is, but, but we're framing them, right? Literally, Donald Trump comes down the escalator talking about drug dealers and evil people coming across, right? I mean, so he's been doing that since day one. And so, you know, the, the caravans are coming. All of that is fear, right? I mean, you're playing to people's fears mm-hmm. and, and that fears to me is unfortunate. a big motivator. I mean, you know. Feel a very big I mean, motivator, um, very powerful. You know, one of the things I always feel like in politics, we always talk about during elections, it's, no one wants to do negative ads, but they work the yes, most. Yeah. You know, when you when you start to see the movement in an election, if you're, you know, and I've been in them, you know, where you're like this and then you go negative, which is fear. You know, yeah. you start to scare. If, if you elect this person, this is what's going to happen. This is what they're going to do to you. And, and people respond to that uh, very aggressively, you know, and, and it's it's unfortunate because I really believe as you're talking that that's. What I'm hearing in barbershops now, I'm amazed at how many people uh, support a conservative agenda on immigration reform, and it's um, it's like, what are you talking about? But but that's but what you said is that it's the fear you know, that uh, a lot of that population, and, and, and I keep saying that like I'm not an African American male, you know, because I, but when I go into the barbershops now, I for my barbershop, I feel like I'm in the minority in the conversation. Because I don't, you know, I don't feel that way. But, but I'm always amazed. I'd be the only person in barbershop that feels that way, mm. you know, that doesn't feel that, you know. And there, you know, at first I thought it was just, oh, it's just my barbershop. And everybody's just, you know, I just only barbershop I go to yeah. mine, you know. And but then when I when Cornell Belcher came on the show the other day and he started saying, I thought, oh my gosh, this is something real. Every barbershop has been a focus group in the black community. <laughs> Since the best kind, existed. man, the best kind, the best kind. Barbershop and beauty shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah tell yeah, us. Yeah, that's what the truth is told. The barbershop yeah. pole. Who's going yeah. to win? Yeah. 
Who's going to win? But you, I, know, you know, I always get my information when I go, I'd be like, who, who y'all voting for? And, and I'm telling you, the election will play out just like that. <laughs> well, and, and, and in the moment that we are in, um, particularly at the national level, but it doesn't, like that number, right? I mean, it's not the overwhelming, it's not even close to a majority of black right, men right, right, right. right? It's a small percentage. But in these tight elections, a small yeah, percentage, it, it, right? It can change the outcome. It, it, totally, right? Um, it, just a small percentage of black men who stay home in 2016 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right? You lose Wisconsin, Hillary Clinton. I mean, that can move. So, you know, and... And, and the, the young brother that was running lost. Uh, right. We're running for Senate. Um, for Senate. Uh, 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 yes, his name's Ramon Ray Barnes. What's that yes, Barnes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he lost. You know, the, again, another the potential of the pickup and what what the outcome of what that could have impact it could have had on the U.S. Senate would have been significant to, to win that seat. So that small number, right? Like yeah. Every vote counts, but that yeah. small percentage can really move. You really move the needle. Um, your students in your classes here at Ohio State uh, have an, an interest, obviously, in history and in, in, in black history and and the civil rights movement. And in teaching your course, what do you set as your goal to be their primary takeaway mm -hmm. to use in a tangible way um, to uh, benefit them in, in society when they walk outside yeah. the gates of this university? I mean, there's a couple of things. One, as they come into the classroom, um, I get students from all over Ohio, all over the country, really. And, you know, I have to, conservative students, you know, kids from rural, rural, suburban America, like most of my students are white in Ohio State. Um, it's not a black college. A, one of the things I tell them is, like, look, I'm not here to change anybody's mind. That's not a requirement. You have to do well in this class, you have to change your mind, but you do have to have an open mind. You have to, you have to be open to the truth, you have to be open to facts, you have to be open to things that make you feel uncomfortable. And, but, you know, I hope in the end, if they, if they do meet me there, right? You don't have to agree with me, but we gotta, we gotta be, oh, you gotta be open, you gotta look at facts, you gotta understand stuff. Then I hope they can take away one of the key lessons, because a lot of my students are, come, are taking these classes, civil rights, African-Americans, because they wanna change the world. Like they really do, right? They, they may not know why it's not working, but they wanna see something different, and I can appreciate that. And if there's one thing I hope they take away is that from the civil rights era, it didn't take a lot of people to make a big difference, right? It really didn't. We think now that, you know, I ask my kids, you know, how many people went to March on Washington? They're like, everybody. I'm like, everybody went at the March on Washington, right? 250,000 people for one afternoon. Y'all have more people by a factor of, of many, right, in the summer of 2020. So it wasn't a lot of people, right? SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, never had more than 200 people, right? It's a small number of people. So if they can take some of the lessons about organizing and change and power and, and persuasion from my classes and then take that with them, right? whether they're trying to change the world or just trying to change their workspace or just trying to change their family dynamic, it doesn't take a lot of people to do that. right? So that, to me, is a message of empowerment for them. right? If they're given the tools, they can make a difference. Right, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Boyce, you know, you've been asked a question that I'm about to uh, raise many times, but... To put context on your answer, you've been uh, an influential individual for some time in this community. You, you've uh, been uh, the state treasurer. You've served on uh, city council at the local level. Um, you've been a, a state representative. 
You've been uh, taking you all the way back. You you've been the executive director of Ohio Legislative Black Caucus. You've had a you've, you've had a lot of different positions. I can't. But in twenty but in twenty <laughs> but in twenty seventeen, you became uh, you were elected the first African American county commissioner uh, in the history of Franklin County, and that that uh, LaPayo Pen says eighteen oh three. Uh, the county has been in uh, in existence, and can you put into to context the significance of that, even in light of all of your other accomplishments? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I I, um, I honestly, uh, way you just laid it out, I never really thought about it like like that. Uh, but I know it's important, you know. Uh, but I, I I feel like it'll be more appropriately measured the day I leave office. Uh, in terms of you know what did it mean and what what could it have meant because just because I'm black and just because I'm a black male and the first time uh, as an office the first time that profile that demographic has uh, existed in this office um, it doesn't mean change comes it doesn't mean you know it can be business as usual and so the real measuring stick will be when I leave that being said um, uh, I'm very grateful to experience that you know to be uh, I've had the opportunity to be a first a couple of times in, in my lifetime. And uh, it's something to be said about um, breaking that ceiling so that others can now uh, come up as well. And, and, and then their work gets done over time. We were talking about uh, using the analogy of baking, you know, and, and all the ingredients that go into something. Um, and to me, it's a, it's a you know, change is um, cooked in a big cake, it's baked in a big cake. And, uh, I've done my part. I've added my two eggs in and uh, a, you know a cup of flour. Now I'm handing it off to someone else, and it's their their turn to uh, put the vanilla in or you know whatever other ingredients that that make that uh, pastry correct. So you know I, I, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that even though uh, I broke the glass on the first African American uh, to exist as a friend kind of commissioner. I hope not the last. I know we've got one currently, but that can all change. You know, it's an election. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you mm-hmm. know that mm-hmm. it, anytime, I mean, I'm fortunate because I don't have an opponent this year. Thank you. <laughs> but, thank you. Uh, but, um, uh, but at the same time, you know, that, that, can, that can change. You know, we could be back to business as usual four years from now. You know, and, and so, uh, and I think, again, as we're talking about with the reaction of, of things after Barack Obama. Um, when I first started in, on, in politics, I was on city council in Columbus and in elected office in politics. And the county was all Republicans. You know, it was, it was you know, all the commissioners were Republican and, and the conversation was, don't even think about running mm-hmm. for the county. Like you never get, you'll never get like, we'll never have that. And so like, we got the city and that's, we, we're good there. We had just gotten the mayor after, you know, not having the mayor for many, many years as the party. And and so um, and now, you know, uh, how many ever years later it is, um, you know, it's all Democrats. You got two black people out of three commissioners, you got two of them are African-American. And just in that short, in a short amount of time, mm-hmm. I came in 2016. Mm-hmm. Now the majority of the county commissioners are black. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, a, you got the first woman. Elected, you know, so and, and part of that is once you break ground, then 
others can come through. And, and that's, you know, the, to me, that's the exciting part about it. You know, hopefully, hopefully what I do is meaningful. And, um, and when I look back, you know, there's something to really say um, that was worth it in terms of me being in the office. Yeah, serving leadership is so important. It's so important not to take for granted opportunities, like you said. You you never want to be the last, or you don't want to do anything that uh, harm uh, the chances of someone following in your footsteps. That that like you. That is a that is a a part of of of, of being a first that doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> that burden that you really care, that you don't want to be that last individual to have that opportunity. Uh, and it's one of the things that, you know, that, that keeps one humble as, they, as they, they move forward because of that realization. This next question is for uh, both you, Dr. Jeffries, and um, Commissioner Boyce. Um, mentorship is extremely important. Um, Mentoring our mentoring our, our youth, showing our youth that uh, despite um, your present circumstances, if you surround yourself with a village, a network of the right people, you can in fact be what you want to be, and it might not necessarily be on the athletic field. It might not be in entertainment. It there are opportunities uh, across the spectrum. You just got to, but you got to see it to believe it. And that's what makes mentorship so important and and having individuals that you can learn from and and get that spark of inspiration to, to be what they are. That's one of the things that I, the reason why I try to dedicate time myself personally to talk to you because I got that. Uh, I don't think I would be where I was at if I didn't have uh, people in the state legislature going back early into my career that saw something in me and invested time to decide where they wasn't getting no credit, nobody didn't see them, uh, but they weren't you know, infusing me in a motivation to move in a direction, not elected office, but appointed office. And it wouldn't have been for those influence, I don't think I would have been successful, I may have, I might have drifted off in the law, I might have went into a different direction. So uh, talk a little bit about um, your theory on mentorship. You do it every day as a, as a professor. But uh, for, for those that aren't in the classroom, uh, it's a little bit different of, of, of how we can contribute uh, via mentorship. Yeah. Well, I'll, you know, I, th- I think there's different types of mentorship to be sure, and there's different models to be sure. I think you hit on one that's really important, and that is the visibility, right? Especially for young people. Um, simply showing what is possible and modeling what is possible, right? So that they can see it. This is from little kids through high school and into college. But then I think there's a different kind of mentorship when we move into sort of the professional ranks, right? And that is, it's not just enough to see you, you actually have to work to help people navigate these professional spaces, uh, whether we're talking about in academia, whether we're talking about in medicine, we're talking about in politics, because there are informal networks that as people of color, as women, that we have been excluded from mm-hmm. that still exist, 
sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And if we don't create those one-on-one relationships to share what it means, your experiences as the first, then it doesn't become possible for the person to come behind you to be as successful. And so the visibility of modeling what it is that we do, I think, is one form of mentorship very early on becomes really critical. But then we have to get hands on as we move into the professional ranks to help those um, who are coming up uh, in our footsteps, uh, you know, that that we make it possible for them to succeed just as those in front of us have made it possible for us to succeed. I'm not sure I can add much more to uh, the idea of mentorship than that. Um, but I'll try, um, you know, maybe, maybe saying that wearing it from the bound lens as a young person uh, in my, you know, my, my father was murdered when I was seven and my mom struggled in many different ways. And like uh, a lot of American families, a lot of folks right here in central Ohio. And I know for sure that I wouldn't be where I am today, uh, no matter how you want to measure that. Uh, without people like Coach Howard, or uh, who was a legendary basketball coach uh, on the north side of Columbus, who um, uh, was kind enough, or you know, Coach Howard or Anthony Thornton, uh, a guy they call AT, who's a um, coach today and um, one of the teachers over at Mifflin High School. I think he's still at Mifflin. Um, but those guys, just to point out those uh, them as examples, because you don't have to be. Um, you don't have to be Kevin Boyce to be a mentor to somebody. You know, uh, you can be Coach Howard. Or you can be AT. Coach Howard, um, at a young age, uh, recognized that I had um, athletic ability, and and he made a point to pick me up every day, and uh, you know, take me to the gym to work out. And back then, wasn't you know, AAU was kind of just getting started, and and there was there was lots of things going on back then. The 80s, 70s and 80s. And um, but he picked me up every day and just said, you know, uh, shoot, you know, 50 shots and or practice layups or, or just whatever. And uh, and then by the time I got to high school, so that, that was Coach Howard and Coach Howard went on to be a legendary high school basketball coach in Central Ohio. For those who might not know, uh, then it was AT. So I, I get to high school, ninth grade, uh, there's a, a star athlete named Anthony Thornton. And Anthony is the superstar of the city. You know, he's a basketball star, football star, track star, um, you know, and a senior. And I'm a freshman. And he would pick me up. You know, I, I get to you know practice on the first day of the tryouts for football. And turns out I'm very fast. Turns out I'm very faster than everybody. And so I get some, you know, highlights. The coaches are talking to me. And, and, but A.T., the big superstar that he was, he would stop and pick me up every day, you know, for practice. And, you know, I wasn't all at the drive or whatnot, but, um, and he just made a point to talk to me in practice, to throw me the ball. He's the senior. He said, you know, I'm coming to you, I'm coming to you, you know, or something. And just give me a chance to star uh, in that kind of environment. So my, my point is to the people who may be watching, um, anybody can be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a mentor sometimes isn't even um, vertical. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I can learn something from my intern, Deshaun. You know, I can learn something from uh, my son at times, you know, uh, and, and lessons. And, and, and in many ways, they're mentoring you. And, mm-hmm. and so yeah. uh, I just said anybody, you know, the power of um, engaging with somebody 
and you never know what it really is going to mean to them, you know, mm-hmm. but it could. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the mm-hmm. whole idea mm-hmm. behind yeah. mentorship is that, yeah. you know, I yeah. can help you think yeah. through something. I can help you, you know, strengthen your view of something. And so uh, so I hope everybody just takes a minute to to think about that as they interact with people. And it doesn't even have to be some long drawn out. I'm picking you up for practice or whatever every day. It, it can be small things. It can be, you know, asking my professor about, you know, um, an issue that's outside of class, you know, in the news or something and, and hearing what he has to say. Or the professor may be asking, I'm sure you learn from your students Absolutely. all the time. And so, um, so I just want to encourage people to, look, you know, mentors come in all shapes and sizes. Right, 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 right. So what position did the president of the board of commissioners play in high school? <laughs> for, uh, so for, what position did you play? Football, you football. Fast. football. Yeah. football. Football, you so, fast, you so, get open. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I can get open. So my freshman year, uh, I played uh, what they refer to as a wingback, which is like a cross, like a split. It's like a cross between a halfback and a receiver. So you just took it back. You yeah, just took it yeah, way back. Wingback, wingback, wingback. Were you willing uh, to run across the middle? Uh, you know what? I never had to. I never had to. But listen, I'm going to tell you, I'm famous. <laughs> I'm famous or infamous. I'm, I'm famous for I ran a 100-yard touchdown my freshman year. Uh, gave me a ball on the goal line. I was just too fast. His kid catch me. He just went around him and, you know, and, 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 uh, and you know, the, it's history after that, you know, because I, I did run track in college. I was a sprinter in, in college and everything. And so I had a pretty decent career. Uh, but, I, you know, you just, you know. But that 100-yard touchdown was pure speed. It was all courage. It wasn't fear of getting hit. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Listen, I was a small guy, man. I was, I, you know, one thing about the guys. Professor, I was like, yeah, it was all courage and speed. Hey, listen, them guys love nothing more than take my head off, too. Man. The, the idea that I was playing with them, we, we they would try to take my head off. We've been running. This conversation has been very enjoyable, I tell you. We've run it over. I, I, I've, I've got the, the red light a few times, but I want to wrap up. Uh, Dr. Jeffries, Tell the uh, our podcast listeners a fun fact uh, regarding yourself. Ah, it could be sports I, teams, it could yeah, be beaches, yeah. mountains. What do you? What? What's? Which? What? what well, I want to share. I'm I'm a girl dad. I, I, I have three daughters, ages 13, 11, and eight. Um, and 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 they're they're just the the light of my world. And they they keep life fun, uh, and I also learn a lot from them. And I also learn a lot about myself because sometimes they ain't that much fun, and you gotta, you know, so you gotta, we gotta rein it in, right? right. Um, but no, they, they, they're a lot of fun, a lot of joy, and just a real blessing. Girl, dad, so you probably, you probably took a big hit yesterday for Valentine's Day. No, yeah, yeah. You had, you had four ladies, so. I had to spread it. I had to spread the love. Spread the love. I had to spread the love. But I also had to model what love is. Right? Right. You know, so that they understand like what what it, what it is. Um, those conversations that we have, right? Like, like, yeah, but you had to be you had to be sweet though. Sweet don't sweet. cost anything. Absolutely. But you had to be sweet. Absolutely. And he only said that because he's in the same exact boat. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only one short of you. <laughs> so I guess the talk of the county is wrapping up. Uh, any parting words? I'm going to give you any parting words uh, before we uh, end this episode, uh, our first Black History Month episode. I, I would just say, you know, I, I, I want to encourage everybody to do podcasts. And we need more um, communication at a granular level. You know, the idea that we can come together 
and just talk about issues, talk about each other, talk about things uh, and, and learn from them. You know, I'm tired of watching CNBC. I'm tired of watching, you know, you know, it's the same thing over and over and the same people over and over. I love when I just hear from everyday people. So maybe, maybe I, you know, I watch the next show and then, and then maybe somebody out there will send me a note to watch their show. That sounds good. I second that. All right. All right. Gotta hear from the people. All right. Sorry. We're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up with my last parting words. Do you? No one else has time to. That's it. Thank you.